Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You and I should recognize that willful ongoing sin is not something that God would desire for our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to walk holy before Him. We're not perfect, but our desire should be to honor God with our life, our actions, our attitudes, our words, our thoughts, everything. Sin. We're all guilty of it. Even after we come into a relationship with Christ, we still sin, right? Now, we know God wants us to sin less as we grow more and more in our relationship with Him. But when a professing believer active in the church begins to engage in willful disobedience to God's Word, what is the church supposed to do? Does the church have a responsibility to try to do something? When you come together, you have to take decisive action on this man and the decision that he has made in his life and what he has gotten himself into. You have to deal with this thing. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're picking back up where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we find a member of the church who has fallen into willful sin. As Pastor Clay showed us in last week's message, rather than grieve the man's actions, the church in Corinth seemed proud of themselves for not judging the man. When the apostle found out about it, he's had some strong words for the church and a warning about what would happen if they didn't deal with this situation. Paul makes it clear, man, you, you ought to be mourning. You ought to be in pain over this, not proud of what's going on in the church. You're proud of yourself because you're so open-minded, but what you've actually done is open the door for sins. This is not good, guys. Today, Pastor Clay is going to give us two more important observations about the church's responsibility in dealing with a professing believer's ongoing sin. As we heard last week, and we'll hear again in this message, church discipline isn't easy, but it isn't complicated either. Now here's Pastor Clay. I got a riddle for you. Now, if, if, if I happen to read a riddle, that you've already heard before and you already know the answer, then maybe give it a few minutes and let other people think about it. But I have, have uh, some rules I want to give you. Here we go. Here's first riddle. It is greater than God. It is more evil than the devil. The poor have it. The rich need it. And if you eat it, you will die. What is it? Nothing. That's right. Nothing. Nothing is greater than God. Nothing is more evil than the devil. The poor have nothing, the rich need nothing, or so they think, and if you eat it, you will die. Here's another one. What goes all the way around the world but stays in its corner? A stamp. A stamp. That's right. That's right. Yeah. This is a smart section over here. Somebody's Googling it fast. Somebody's got their phone working. All right, one more. What do an island... And the letter T have in common. What? Well, I didn't hear that one. What? Siri. Siri. Siri can't. Yeah. What do an island and the letter T have in common? They're both in the middle of water. Uh, yeah. See, here's the thing about riddles. They, 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 they're, not, they're usually not, unless you're exceedingly brilliant, they're usually not necessarily easy, but they're not complicated either once you understand them, are they? Once you understand them, it's like, oh my, oh, I, I, oh, oh, right? 
They're not necessarily easy, but they're not really complicated either, at least once you understand them. And that's what we said that the BP squared was last week, if you were here. That's what we said the big picture biblical principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is. We're making our way through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians in this series called Crossroads. Just to remind you, Corinth was literally at the crossroads of the ancient world, especially in the trade part industry of the world. Corinth was where everybody flowed through and came into and Paul is, is, is uh, writing to the church in Corinth. We're in 1 Corinthians, and we're making our way through this letter, and we've come to chapter 5, a chapter that may seem difficult for us to think of how we might apply it, but that is, in truth, uh, a, lot of, uh, tr- a lot of lessons for us to learn from it. But the big picture biblical principle that we looked at last week, and I'll start with again this week, was this. Church discipline. It's not easy, but it's not complicated either. It's really not. Now, last week I read uh, 1 Corinthians 5 in its entirety, all 13 verses at at one time. This week, because we're we're coming into the second part of it, I'm going to read the passage as we go. But if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I encourage you, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Whether it's on your phone, on your tablet, uh, or whether you have a hard copy, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look at this, this subject that is not easy to talk about. Especially in a culture that has become or thinks of itself as so non-judgmental. It's not really, but it wants to think of itself that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, church discipline is not easy, but it's not complicated either. And I started last week with this idea, if you happen to be here. If you weren't here, by the way, and you're interested, please go back and listen to that first message. Kind of catch you up to speed and cover this in more depth than I will this morning. But the first uh, idea that we shared, oh yeah, uh, before we get to the 1 Corinthians 5, before we get to the first idea, I, I, needed, I wanted to remind you, thank you Tyler, I wanted to remind you that there were two ground rules here in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember I said that last week, two ground rules about judgment, because that's clearly what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. Two ground rules. First was this, judgment is intended for the people of God, not for the people of the world. Now that's going to come out more clearly uh, today as we get to the latter part of the passage. But you need to understand that right from the outset. This is not talking about people outside the walls of the church who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, thinking that we can judge them and their actions and all that kind of stuff. As I said last week, doesn't mean that we can't call out sin and and say, no, God says, but it's not our place to judge. Paul makes it clear that's that's God's business. So it's it's intended for the people of the church, not for those outside. The second ground rule is this. This judgment is focused on a professing believer practicing a lifestyle of sin, not an occasional lapse into sin. Do you remember that if you were here? In other words, as I said last week, I'll say it again, we all sin, we all mess up, we all uh, break God's law, we do things that God would not desire for us to do. We do, and and hopefully we, as I said last week, we sin less and less as we grow in Christ, hopefully we're repentant, we're desiring not to sin, but we do sin. This is not what Paul, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about that every time... uh, Something you find out, you know, your spouse uh, said a, an inappropriate word when they did this or that. It's not like, oh, call the church, call the church. We got to practice church discipline. What Paul is talking about here is the person who has engaged in an ongoing, ongoing, should I say it again? Ongoing sinful practice. They are intentionally, willfully, willingly rebelling against God, they know it's wrong, but they're doing it anyway. That's who we're talking about in the church, and this, this person who professes Christ as our Savior, okay? So, here we go. Here was the first uh, 
principle that I gave you last week. Sin in the church should bring pain, not pride, to the body of Christ. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Uh, just real briefly, basically, the guy, there, there, there was a person in the church, professed Christ their Savior. This person is active in the church. Maybe they're, maybe they're serving. Maybe they're, uh, I, don't, I don't know what all they're doing. But they are active within the body of Christ. They're participating in the events of the church. And at the same time, they are engaged in an ongoing adulterous relationship with a person who is married, it's unclear whether, whether, the, whether the guy is married, but it is clear that the person he's carrying on an ongoing relationship with is married. And to make it even more kinky, the person he's having this ongoing relationship with is his, as Paul says, his father's wife. As I said last week, I, most people believe that it's referring to his, his stepmother, that his father, either his mother has died or his father divorced her and has remarried somebody else. Uh, and so most likely it's his stepmother, but as I also said, I do not believe that from the text, I do not believe you can rule out that, it's, that the possibility that it could even be his biological mother. In any event, what's going on is, is wrong. By the way, it would be wrong even if it wasn't his stepmother, or, or, you understand. It, he, he's having a, a relationship with someone who's married to another person. That's wrong. That's wrong. And it's ongoing. And, and he seems proud of it. He, he's unwilling to come out of it. And to make matters worse, the church seems proud of it. Maybe they're proud of him. I don't know. But they seem proud of themselves that they have been so open-minded and, and not judged this man for this relationship that he's having with his spouse. And Paul makes it clear, man, you, you ought to be mourning. You ought to be in pain over this. Not, not proud of what's going on in the church. Let's get into the second idea uh, this morning. It looks like this. Sin in the church needs decisive action to prevent disastrous corruption to the body of Christ. It needs decisive action. Now let me read verses 3 through 8. Y'all with me? It's a heavy subject, I know, but feel free to amen or whatever you want to do during the course of this. Verse 3, continuing on. For I... On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. I, I've judged him just as if I were there. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, when you come together as the, as the body, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So much for Christians not judging, huh? 
Now, there's no place for a judgmental attitude. Let's be clear about this. No place for somehow thinking that I'm better than this person because I didn't fall for that. I didn't stumble into that. I didn't commit that offense, that grievous offense. Look at how much better I am. There's no place for a sinful attitude. But Paul could not be clearer that a decisive action needs to be taken. And Paul realizes that the that the situation is so critical that it cannot wait until he gets there. And so basically Paul says to them, listen, I'm not with you right now in body, but I'm with you in spirit. And I have judged this man for his actions, and you have to judge him for his actions as well. When you come together, you have to take decisive action on this man and and the, the decision that he has made in his life and what he has gotten himself into. You have to take a decisive action. You have to deal with this thing. You have to get this man out of the church. We'll talk about what all that may mean a little bit later, but you have to take action. Now, if you happen to be sitting there thinking, man, where's grace in all of this? Where's grace in all of this? I, I, I thought we were people of grace. I thought we were uh, people of, of love. I thought we were people of, of forgiveness. Where's grace in all of this? First, let me say to you, make sure that you are defining grace properly. Let me just, let me just bring it up here. Have Tyler bring it up here, ladies and gentlemen. But here's what you need to understand. God's grace doesn't overlook sin. God's grace overpowers sin. God's grace doesn't ignore ignore sin. God's grace eliminates sin. God's grace doesn't pretend sin isn't there. God's grace paid for the sin that is there. Do, Do you understand what we're saying here? Love, ladies and gentlemen, love isn't ignoring a problem or pretending there's not a problem. Love is dealing with the problem. That's what love does. Most of us in here have probably uh, seen the film Forrest Gump. Aren't, aren't you just dying to do your best Forrest Gump impersonation right now just as I said that? Most of us have seen the film uh, Forrest Gump. If you have seen the film, then you know that as a little boy, Forrest had to wear these big old leg braces. He had to wear these big old uh, braces on his legs because his legs weren't forming right as he, were, as he was growing. There was a problem with his legs. There was no strength in them. They were crooked, the doctor says. And so there was a problem in, with, with his legs and he had to wear these big old braces. My, my oldest brother, uh, my mom was telling me, my oldest brother, when he was just a little baby, little, uh, a little toddler, that uh, his legs, his feet or something, they were turned way in or turned way out or something. And so doctors put full uh, casts on both of his legs when he was just a little baby. And she said that about every uh, three to four weeks, they'd have to go down to the hospital, cut the casts off, and then put him back in new casts, turned a slightly a little bit more in the direction they're trying to get his legs to, to grow so that they would become uh, straight. Now, I'm sure today they have, for the most part, uh, methods and, and ways to, to deal with, with issues like that, physical issues that maybe are not quite as, as obvious as big old leg braces. I can't remember when the last time I saw somebody in big leg braces. Maybe they still do it the same way, but maybe they have some different ways also of dealing with that than leg casts and, and all of that kind of stuff. But could you imagine a loved one, a person that cared about that person, their child or, or whatever? Could you imagine them saying, well, I knew there was a problem. I, I could tell there was a problem. I could see it, but... 
you know, I, 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 I didn't want to point it out. I, I didn't want them to think it was obvious. I, I didn't want to embarrass them by, by, by just, you know, saying, hey, your legs are crooked. I, 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 I didn't want to, I didn't want to make them mad at me because I pointed out. So I, I, I just pretended I, I, I didn't notice anything. I just pretended not to see it. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot think of a more ungraceful thing. I cannot think of a more unloving thing to do than to pretend that there's not a problem. You see, grace deals with sin. Grace doesn't deny sin. So, so make sure that you understand what, what grace is when you say, I thought we're all about grace. The fact is, we are all about grace, ladies and gentlemen. And this is what grace looks like in, in activating it in a person's life who's engaged in a practice that is harmful, destructive to them, and as we'll see, to the body of Christ. And second, let me just say this, that, that when you understand this within the proper context and you understand what grace really is, you can see that grace is actually all over this situation. Now, I'll get into this further as we get along, but this action that Paul is taking and that he's, t- he's, he's telling the church they've got to take, this is actually for this man's good that's involved in this sin, and it's for the good of the church. This is what grace looks like when, when, it's, when it's given to a person who is allowed to practice in their life that God says is wrong. Grace deals with sin. It doesn't just deny sin, okay? And then, <laughs> and then Paul says something that has been discussed and debated for a long, long, long time. Paul says to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Can y'all say, wow? Wow. 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 One thing to, to say you're going to put the guy out of the church. But now, you, now you're turning him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does Paul mean by that? What in the world does that mean? What the world? So here's what we're going to do. There are basically, you could, you could break it down and we'll just break down his statement into, into two uh, parts. There are basically two questions that we can ask here based on Paul's statement. One what does Paul mean by deliver such a one to Satan? What, what does that mean? Uh, you're handing him over to Satan. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, what does that mean, actually? And two, what does Paul mean by for the destruction of his flesh? That's really the two big questions in this statement that we need to look at. What does Paul mean by that? Now, as to the first question, y'all with me? As to the first question... Deliver such a one to Satan? What, is, what does that mean by that? There are basically two ideas that are generally tossed about as what it could possibly mean. There's a third uh, one proposed, but it's basically kind of a combination of the, of the other two, so we'll just stick to those two. Uh, the first possibility of the meaning of what Paul means by deliver such a one to Satan, as the uh, Bible commentator Leon Morris puts it, It is a very forcible way of expressing the loss of all Christian privileges. In other words, when Paul says, deliver such a one Satan for the destruction of his flesh, what he means is you're taking away all Christian privileges from that uh, person as a professing believer in Jesus Christ. Now, in today's culture, in today's society, that may not seem like that big a deal. Ooh, took my my church privileges away. Ooh. 
It may not seem like that big a deal. It should be a big deal, by the way. But in our culture, in America at least, the truth is a person can just go down the street and, and join another church anytime he wants and, and be probably warmly welcomed and greeted and, and brought into the, uh, to the fellowship. But back then, when Paul writes this, listen, there's not the First Baptist Church of Corinth, the Methodist Church of Corinth, the Church of God in Corinth, the, the non-denational Church of Corinth. There's just the church in Corinth, okay? There's just the church of Corinth. And oftentimes when a person came to Christ in those days, they were, they were shunned by their, by their family. They were rejected, Jew or Gentile, certainly Jew, but even Gentile families would reject this person because they, 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 they're following Christ. And so they would reject them. They would have nothing to do with them. And so brothers and sisters in Christ became your family. They became your family. So uh, to, to now be uh, cut off from that, that was a big deal. It was a big deal. The other possibility, so that, that, that's one possibility, okay? That he's basically saying you, you, you cut off the Christian privileges, let, that person's got to be taken out of, the, out of the fellowship. The other possibility of deliver such a one to Satan could be what is known as an apostolic judgment. An apostolic judgment. In other words, Paul, as, as an apostle of the church, is pronouncing a judgment on this guy, similar to what uh, Peter did. You remember to, uh, what Peter did to Ananias and Sapphira when, uh, they, uh, when they lied about how much money they gave to the church in Acts chapter 5 and Peter pronounced a judgment on them? Or in uh, Acts chapter 8 when Peter did the same thing. Peter seemed to like to do the apostolic judgments. Peter did the same thing in Acts chapter 8 to uh, Simon the sorcerer because he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. So, some people believe that that's what Paul's doing here, that he's passing an apostolic judgment on this man for his actions. Now, obviously, if that is the meaning of deliver such a one to Satan, if that is the meaning, then the second part for the destruction of the flesh has to mean striking dead, fall down dead, be dead, expire, stop breathing, which it could mean, all right? Not ruling that out. It could mean. So, all right. But here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Given, given that in this text, Paul goes on and he says, uh, clean out the old leaven uh, in verse 7, when he says uh, not to associate with any uh, so-called immoral person, when he says in verse 13, uh, remove the wicked man from among you, given what he says as, as the text moves on there and given that we know that this man did not die as a result of Paul's actions or the church's actions we find that out when we get to 2 Corinthians but we know the man did not die based on what Paul says here and based on the fact that we know that this man does not die I do not believe that this was an apostolic judgment some people do but I do not believe that this was actually an apostolic judgment I believe that it is I believe that it is Paul's way of saying, you, you, you've, got to, you, you've got, to, you got to get this guy out of the church. So, in other words, deliver such a one to Satan, in my opinion, believes for the church to, for the, for the, to put the man out of the church. That's what I mean. Now, again, at the end, we'll kind of get to, I hope to be able to get to some, what all does that mean when we say put the man out of the church? Does, does, does the church have bouncers at the door and they don't let this guy come in or anybody come in or what, what, is, what does that mean? Hopefully we'll have time to, uh, to get some of that. So 
Th that's what I believe that he's saying. You cut off his Christian privileges, uh, you you're not associating with this guy, you're putting him out of the church. Or the uh, technical term would be you're going to excommunicate him. Now that has been abused historically, we know, but anyway, that seems to be what Paul's saying. Which then leads to the second part of the phrase, which is what? Come on, for the destruction of the flesh. If Paul means cut off Christian privileges, put the guy out of the church, as I believe that's what he means. If that's what he means, then the second part of the statement, for the destruction of his flesh, flesh or sarks uh, would be the Greek uh, term, the, the Greek word, would, would mean then the carnal nature, the sinful nature or sinful attitude of the man, not necessarily his flesh. Thank you, Sebastian. <laughs> I listen, I know, I know it's a lot, okay? I know it's a lot, but it's okay to dive deep. Because, you know, can I say this to you? I, I meant to say this earlier. I'll just go ahead and say it. I'll take a little short commercial break here. Commercial break for God's Word. Can I say, if, if, if you're, you know, if you think, oh, church discipline, I don't, I don't know. If God thought it important enough to put it in there, don't you think you and I ought to think it important enough to, to look at it and figure out, okay, how does this apply to my life? What does this mean for me? What do I do with this? And as I said last week, one of the things that ought to be teaching us is that God is holy, holy. Okay, so, so if the first part of the phrase means what I think it means, then the second part of the phrase has to do with his carnal nature, not necessarily his, his flesh. Although, listen, I've got to be honest with you, the most natural application for the word sarks is physical flesh. That is the most natural application. Although Paul does use it to refer to carnal nature, uh, he's already used it in this letter in chapters 2 and 3. So it's not unprecedented for him to use sarks to mean the, the, the carnal nature, the carnal attitude of a person. But the most natural application is the flesh. So we cannot rule out that Paul is saying, listen, if this guy's going to continue down this path of sin, it may very well cost him his life. You, you, ca you cannot rule that out. Most of us are... Most of us in here are, are grown adults. We've lived long enough to understand that, that a, a life of sinful choices, of ongoing rebellion against God and sinful choices, can take a physical toll on the human body. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? There's this line in this Jackson Brown song where Jackson Brown goes to the doctor and, uh, and he, says, he says, I'm 27, and the doctor says, but that's impossible. You look like you could be 45. Right? There is a, we've got, we got to be honest about that. There is a toll that ongoing, willful, physical, sinful actions can take on the human body. We, we just have to say that. Plus, you cannot rule out the fact that when, when the husband of this woman finds out, in this case, the guy's own father, when he finds out what's going on, he may very well kill him. Listen, jealousy is a very powerful emotion and I will not rule out that if the guy is truly born again and he has he has made this life choice and he's going off in this direction and he's doing he doesn't care what God says doesn't care what the church says doesn't care what people think if he's going to continue down this action and bring shame to the name of Christ you hear me bring shame to the name of Christ I will not rule out that God may take that person out now if you if you if you would say come on God wouldn't do that Tell that to Ananias and Sapphira, who I mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 5. 
Oh, oh yeah, Peter, that's, we, we gave the whole amount. Sale of that property, we gave all of it to the church. <laughs> Tell that to these people here in Corinth, because when we get to chapter 11 and discuss the Lord's Supper, you're going to find that Paul says that, that some of them had died. Some of them were dying. God was taking some of them out because they were, they were, as Paul puts it, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And we'll talk about what all that might mean when we get to chapter 11, if the Lord allows us to do that. But again, we're coming back to this idea that you cannot understand the love, grace, and mercy of God until you understand the holiness of God. So, this is, this is, this is not good. Decisive action has to be taken. Let me read it to you again, this time from the New Living Translation, verses, uh, let me just read 6 through 8. Well, I would have read, I would have read verse 6 through 8 from the New Living Translation. Well, I, I will read the verses from the New Living Translation. Okay, let's see. All right. Gotta love technology. Our, tech, our technical team does an amazing job, by the way. Amazing job. If you want to be part of a technical team, see uh, Tyler or Matt. They'll be happy to help you figure out how to get in part of our technical team. I'm not saying they need help because that happened, you understand. I'm, I'm, they don't. I, I really, I'm not. They're, they're awesome. They're awesome. All right, here we go. Listen to this from the New Living Translation. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, you're proud of yourself because you're so open-minded, but what you've actually done is open the door for sin to come into your, your midst. This is not good, guys. And Paul uses a culinary, am I saying that word right, culinary? Paul uses a culinary analogy to drive home the point that this is going to impact the entire church. In, in the Bible... Uh, leaven or yeast, it's essentially the same thing, but in the Bible, leaven represents sin. It's a represent, it, 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 throughout Scripture, where it's used, it's used to be a picture or to represent sin. And Paul says to them, listen, don't you know that a little uh, leaven, a little yeast, that's the natural part of, of leaven, possibly, don't you know that a little yeast affects the entire lump of dough? And of course they did know that. They'd seen it a thousand times in their homes as, as the, the yeast or the, the fermentation process took place and, and produced carbon dioxide and alcohol and, and caused the, the dough to, to begin to rise and to expand. Of course, they'd seen that a thousand times. And Paul says, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. It just takes a little bit of leaven, just a little bit, just a little bit of sin, and it will affect the entire lump of dough. He says, hey, why don't you act like a, like a, like a, unleavened lump of dough because that's what you actually are because of what Christ did for you. He says, you're a, you're a new lump of dough in Christ. Don't, don't just let the leaven, don't let the sin come back in because the leaven slash sin is affecting the entire lump of dough slash church. That's what he's saying there. And decisive action has to be taken. Listen, uh, it's kind of cold and nasty out there today. 
but it's not as bad as you know some place in the world or whatever else. I don't know if you've ever experienced frostbite, but uh, I know some people uh, have. And, and from what I understand, frostbite, if un, untreated, if it's not dealt with properly, uh, can lead to gangrene. Right? Gangrene is basically where the blood flow is cut off to that to that extremity, that portion of the of the body. Uh, the blood not flow, and the skin begins to die. The flesh begins to die. Right? Isn't that what gangrene is? And gangrene is not something you can just say. Well, look at there. There's gangrene. No, decisive action has to be taken, which usually means what? Amputation. The finger, the toe, the, the, the foot, the whatever. That you have to amputate if you want to save the life. Do you understand? You have to take decisive action. I'd call amputation a pretty decisive action. And Paul says, well, you, you, better, you better take some decisive action here. Here we go, real quickly. Let me give you two ways that this affects the church. The first is what I would uh, call a corporate consequence. There can be a corporate an overall church-wide consequence for ongoing rebellion against God in the church, especially if the church knows about it and is not dealing with it. God will remove his hand from a group of people. Probably the, probably the best biblical example of this is in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan takes some things that belong to God. He steals those things because he wants them to covet some gold and stuff like that, and he hides them under his, his tent. And, and in the story in, Judge, in uh, Joshua 7, uh, the implication is not very many people know that he's even done this. But Israel goes up and, they, and they, they get whipped in a battle that they should have been able to win with their eyes closed. And the text specifically says that God was against them because of the sin of Achan. You understand what I'm saying? There can be a corporate consequence to ongoing willful rebellion. And you and I, if we're part of this body... Because we're considered one body, because we're considered this family, we ought to care about that. If I'm allowing sin in my life that, that I'm not, I'm just let, I know it's wrong, but I'm, you understand what I'm saying to you? All right, uh, corporate consequence, and then the second one is a contagious corruption. Let me just say this real quickly. There's a contagious corruption. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, is like a cancer. If it is not dealt with, it will spread. It will spread. It will spread. Think about it. If the church doesn't take action, if the church says, man, I, we're awesome, because we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't care what uh, Tom is involved in in his life. I don't know if there's any Toms in here. I don't mean, but we don't care if Tom's sleeping with his stepmom. It's a little weird, but, but we, don't, you know, we don't care. If, if, if they keep doing that, listen, let me tell you something. How long do you think it will be before Satan provides another opportunity for another person to be involved in, in some action that God says, don't do this. This is going to hurt you. How long do you think it'll be? I'm, I'm just going to tell you, it's not going to be long. There can be a, a corruption. It spreads. It's contagious and it spreads to other members of the body. And Paul says, you've got to take decisive action. It's, listen, it's not easy. Nobody wants to do that. But it's not complicated either. And if we love the body of Christ and we love people within the body of Christ that have allowed something in their life, we have to take some decisive action. All right, real quickly, let me give you the second one and we'll get ready to, to close here. Sin in the church requires a hard position to heal a heart condition. I want you to understand, that is the motivation here. It requires a heart condition to, a hard position to heal a heart condition. Let me just read uh, verses 9 through 13 real quickly uh, to you. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. 
for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler. It's not an exhaustive list, by the way. He's just, he's just saying somebody that's, that's engaging in a lifestyle that God does not want for their life. Not, he says, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul, uh, by the way, this may come as a surprise to you, but I don't know if you caught that just then after I read it or if you've read it before. This may come as a surprise to you, but Paul mentions a previous letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. We have no record of that letter whatsoever other than what Paul mentions of it right here. Now, that doesn't mean we lost part of the Word of God, okay? Don't, oh my gosh, we lost part of the Bible. Doesn't mean we lost part of the Word of God. What it means is that God never intended for that letter. Remember, there's, there's letters passing between church leaders. That, there's hundreds of letters being written at that time. It just meant that that letter, God did not intend for it to be part of the, of, the, of the sacred documents. God did not intend for that letter to be part of what we call the canon, the collection of books and letters that came to be known as the Bible. But, but apparently something that he wrote in that first letter, they had misunderstood or they took it the wrong way or whatever because he seems to be correcting here. He says, I didn't mean, when I said don't associate with an immoral person, I didn't mean don't associate with people in the world because you'd have to leave the world. And the implication is, how are they going to hear about Christ if, if, if you leave the world? How are they going to know that God loves them and desires a relationship with them if you don't even associate with them? Of course I didn't mean that. What I meant was for you not to associate with any, and Paul's, wording here leaves room for the fact that this guy may not even actually even be born again when he says so-called brother so paul's leaving room there that based on this guy's actions, he may not even be uh, born again but because he professes to be born again because he professes to be part of the body of christ paul says you've got to deal with it you've got to deal with it you've got to deal with it you've got to take a hard position but the intent is to bring a, a healing to this man's heart condition in other words that if you'll take a hard position toward this guy god can work on it but not the people outside of the church listen i've said this probably a thousand times in my life i just to say this to y'all some of y'all heard me say this lost people act the way they do because they're lost they only have their carnal nature they only have their sin nature they don't know any other they don't have a, the spirit of god saying clay uh-uh no don't and so they just, that's just, a, so Paul says, I'm not talking about judging them. That's God's business. I'm saying within the body, this so-called brother, you've got to take action. You've got to deal with him. It's hard. When my dad was having a heart attack, they suspect he was having a heart attack, and he was, he was rushed to the hospital. And in the examination room, a doctor came in and was asking him some questions to try and get some information, get some sort of baseline, because my dad never went to doctors, never went to the hospitals, any of that kind of stuff. And the doctor asked him if he smoked. And my dad said, yes, I do. He smoked cigars. And then he turned to my mom, who was in the room with him, and he said, do you smoke? And she said, no, I don't. And the doctor said, well, you might as well, because he's killing you with his smoke. Now, my dad only lived about another three years before he died of pancreatic cancer. But my mom says that my dad never smoked another cigar, cigarette, never took another puff again the rest of his life because of what that doctor said to him in that room that day and what, what the doctor said it was doing to my, to my mom. 
Now, now in that case, listen, the doctor was literally taking a hard position because he was literally trying to, to heal a heart condition. But the same is true for us, spiritually speaking. Sometimes we have to take a hard position, but the intent is to bring healing to a heart condition that this man is in. That's the desire. That's the design. That's what I want you to understand here today. That's what we're trying to do. It's not easy. It's not. It's not easy to take a hard position. Now, let me just say this real quickly. I know we've got to close it, wrap this thing up, but we could ask the question, as Paul comes to the end there in verse, the very end, really, of the chapter, remove the wicked man from among you. What does Paul mean by remove from among you? Remove the wicked man from among you. What does exactly does that mean? And does it mean contextually the same thing it would mean today? I'll be honest with you. It may be hard to, to fully determine that, because there are some differences contextually in the way we do church t- today, what it was thought of today. But basically, here's what it is. Basically, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, this guy uh, professes to be a believer. You cannot treat him like that, though, because he's not acting like he's a believer. Basically, you have to treat him like he's an unbeliever. Right? So You've got to treat him like he's, he, he's of the devil. He wants, to, he wants to act like he's of the devil. Let him be of the devil. You've got to basically treat him like an unbeliever. So the question would be then, how would I want to treat an unbeliever? Would I, would I bar an unbeliever from coming in these doors for a service? You know what I'm saying? Am I going to have a bouncer at the door? Joe Thomas and Sebastian will be at both ends of the door. Don't you dare let anybody in that, you know, can't give the secret handshake or, you know. what? No, he says, no, you, I, no, you would want a person to come and sit under the word of God, wouldn't you? Especially if there's a person who's professing Christ and they're living in a moral life and you know it, wouldn't you want them sitting under the, the convicting power of the Word of God? It seems like you would. So I don't think that he means this guy shouldn't ever, don't, don't let him come into a service. But what I do think he means is that you, you can't fellowship with this guy. You can't go on and continue to act like nothing is wrong. And Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, that could mean don't partake of the Lord's Supper with this guy, but because the Lord's Supper in that day was almost always preceded by sharing a, a love feast, a meal together, he almost certainly is saying, man, you the point is, you, you, can't, you can't socialize, you can't fellowship, you can't act like nothing's wrong when something's wrong. Here's what it means. Hey, Tom. I'm picking on Tom again. <laughs> hey, Tom. How you doing? Listen, I hadn't talked to you in a while, uh, you know, since the whole thing went down with my wife, I split with her, you know, over my girlfriend. I know. <laughs> That's kind of weird. But uh, listen, I know you guys haven't had a chance to meet Melanie. No, Melanie's in here. Either. I don't, haven't had a chance to meet with Melanie. And uh, how, about, how about if you, you and uh, Peggy get together with us next week and, and, and just, you know, get a chance to know each other, you know, and fellowship and have a good time. No, I, I'm sorry, Randy. I love you, man. But you've allowed sin to come into your life. You're, you profess Christ as your Savior, but you're acting in a way that God says is wrong. I, I, I can't. I can't sit down and share a meal with you until you come out of that sin. Now listen, remember, remember the intent, right? If a guy, if a guy calls Ernie Breedlove and says, hey, Ernie, listen, man, I, can you have lunch with me Thursday? There's just something gnawing at me, and, and I, need to have, I need to talk with somebody about it. Ernie's not going to say, no, dude. The church has practiced discipline on you. I won't have anything to do with you until you repent. He may actually be trying to repent. He may actually be coming under conviction. He may actually need to talk to a brother or sister in Christ about where he is in his relationship with God. So, of course, Ernie's going to meet 
and have lunch with that guy. What we're talking about is the intent here, to act as if nothing was wrong when something is wrong. What it means is, hey, pastor, it's Ricardo. It's Ricardo. Man, you're not going to believe this. This is your lucky day. I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but I met a guy last week whose father-in-law is a member of Augusta National. And he and, and his father-in-law are going down to play Augusta National next week, and they invited me to come along. You're not going to leave this, Pastor? He said I could bring anybody with me that wanted to come, and I know playing Augusta National is on your bucket list, so what do you say? You got next Thursday open? Mm. <laughs> no, Ricardo. You know that we've talked about what you've allowed to come into your life. We've discussed this. You know that there's things in your life. You've even said you know it's not that God doesn't approve of it. But yet you've not changed. You've not moved away from it. So, no, Ricardo, I, I can't go with you next Thursday to play Augusta National. That, that's what it means, folks. It, it, means, it means having to do something hard, but the intent is always to bring healing. And we're going to see that when we get to 2 Corinthians. That's, that's the good news about this story. We're going to see that when we get to 2 Corinthians, but I, I want you to understand that. Here's what it means for us. We'll close. We've got to go. Here's what it means. That you and I should recognize that willful ongoing sin is not something that God would desire for our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to walk holy before Him. We're not perfect. We've talked about all that. We're not perfect, but our desire should be to honor God with our life, our actions, our attitudes, our words, uh, our thoughts, everything. And it means when we know of a brother or sister who has engaged in some willful, uh, sinful practice that is destructive to both them and, and, and to the church, harmful to the church, we need to care about them enough to confront them about it, to deal with it, to take action as a church so that the intent would be to bring them back into a right relationship where God wants them to be. That's the goal. Amen? It's clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that decisive action has to be taken when a professing brother or sister in Christ has engaged in an ongoing practice that God calls sin. It would certainly be easier to just pretend we don't know anything about it. But as Pastor Clay pointed out today, that's not what love is. It doesn't deny that there is a problem. And to be sure, if sin is not dealt with, it will be a big problem, both for the man or woman engaged in a sinful practice and for the church that refuses to deal with it. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, discovering how to really live in the promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I get it from Clay Stevens. They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it.
And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.